Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. Psychedelic-assisted therapy is showing great promise for people suffering from anxiety, depression, PTSD, end-of-life distress, chronic pain, and other health conditions. But how might psychedelics be effective at treating other health issues, specifically conditions related to women's health? That's what we're going to dive into in this episode, featuring my guest, a well-known and respected female researcher, someone who's played a pivotal role in the early clinical trial work with MDMA and who is now exploring the link between psychedelics and women's health. She's uncovered some fascinating information regarding the historical use of psychedelics for pregnancy and childbirth amongst women of various cultures. We're also going to discuss how psychedelics can be potentially beneficial for women who are suffering with PMS, postpartum depression, and symptoms related to menopause, the potential to improve women's sexual desire with psychedelics, and the other ways psychedelics could have a significant impact on women's physical and mental health in the years to come. Although this is a very new focus for psychedelic research with almost 4 billion women on the planet and growing, no doubt. Out, it could prove to be one of the most interesting and important. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. Today's episode is dedicated to a topic that I think is absolutely fascinating, and that is the connection between psychedelics and women's health. And joining me is Dr. Allison Fiducia. You may know of Ali. She's very well known in this space. If not, her background is absolutely fascinating. She is a neuropharmacologist and psychedelic researcher. She earned her doctorate in neuropharmacology from the University of Texas at Austin, studying the effects of MDMA on behavior and neurochemical release. She was a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, and at the National Institutes of Health, where she investigated treatments for substance use disorders. Her work at MAPS Public Benefit Corporation focused on MDMA protocol designs, data analysis, scientific writing, and public education and outreach. She is also co-founder of two very inspiring groups, Psychedelic Support and Project New Day. And through her work, she seeks to spread evidence-based knowledge, connection to phenomenal resources, and strategies to help people maximize the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics through safe and responsible practices. And Ali, I know you are a busy lady, so thank you very much for making time and discussing this really important topic here. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into psychedelics, because you obviously have an enormous amount of experience in that area, I am curious to know a little bit more about your origin story. What inspired you to go into research and specifically neuropharmacology? 
My journey with psychedelics started really early on in life. I was 15 years old growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And at the time, there was very little drug education that we received from school or from our parents. So my friends and I decided to take some LSD after reading a lot of the beat poets, watching Days and Confuse, listening to Janis Joplin. We just felt like there was a lot more to the whole psychedelic story than we had been told. And so, yeah, we went to a dance together and we took LSD and everything was going great. Shimmery lights. We were having a great time. And someone offered me another hit of LSD, which I took because one drop is good. Two must be better. Long story short, we left the dance and I ended up with some other people from the high school and I ended up having what we might call the classic psychedelic freakout bad trip experience, or at least that's how this was playing out with me and my physical body. But internally, I was actually having this experience where I was traveling through space and time, seeing past events in my life, past events of past lives or some collective conscious experience. It was a really Really, really profound, as well as frightening and challenging, confusing experience that I underwent. And how it ended up was that I woke up in the hospital. I was there with my parents. And I know now the experience that I had was what Stan Groff, LSC researcher, transpersonal psychologist, talked about a rebirth experience. So now I really feel that I had something like that during this first LSD trip in this hospital room, which I thought had been staged for my birth. <laughs> and I woke up with my parents next to me. And, you know, the next day I got in a lot of trouble. They were very concerned about their 15-year-old daughter taking LSD for good reason. I was lucky enough that I wasn't you know, physically injured in any way, but there was no integration circle the next day. It was this interrogation circle with my parents. I really just didn't know what to do with it. I bottled up that experience. I started reading books at the library to try to have some context around what was that. My friends didn't have that experience and I didn't know that LSD could cause such a thing. So it really set me on this path of trying to understand the psychedelic experience. Probably the closest thing that I found in the Baton Rouge Library in the 1990s was on near-death experiences. I started reading a lot about psychology and philosophy and consciousness expanding experiences. But I kept coming back to the idea of like, well, how could that tiny drop of LSD shift me into that state, whatever it was? And if that was possible, then how does my brain do that? And could I induce that experience without drugs through other types of practices like meditation, or sensory deprivation or any of these other ways that we know can alter our present reality. So it took me on this path of trying to understand how drugs work in the brain and what is this experience that we're all walking in these bodies that we have and our perceptions of the world. Wow, I did not know that. So I am so glad I asked that question. I expected you to say something like, I've just always been interested in science or something. So pretty significant first personal experience, which no doubt has fueled this intense interest in psychedelics and obviously supports a lot of your work today. And psychedelic research is and will certainly become a large and interesting field. I read an interesting study here. UNESCO Institute for Statistics mentioned that less than 30% 
of the world's researchers are women. And I was just curious, why do you think that is? Is it women are just maybe not as naturally interested in science and research? Or is it that women enter the field and then maybe get sidelined by having children or other priorities? This is a big topic of discussion. The STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, we see a large disparity between the number of men and women that both enter the advanced degree fields and then also as the transition into leadership positions or advancement into their careers. It's what's called a leaky pipeline. We start to lose a lot of women after they receive advanced science degrees. And as you mentioned, I think there's contributing factors of family, work-life balance, or a lot of pressure, especially in academic fields, to go for those grants, a lot of publications, and it's tricky to make that balance in that transition. There's also, you know, a lot of male-dominated positions or fields that might be consciously or unconsciously suppressing the advancement of women. We know, too, the disparity in the pay gap may be somewhere in the order of $15,000 for an average position in science. So all of these factors, I think, kind of come together that has limited the participation of women in science fields. And I will say in more of the biological sciences, there is better representation compared to mathematics or computer science. I recall seeing a presentation a while ago about the number of role models that are displayed in movies and theaters of women in roles that might be scientists or roles like this are much less represented. And maybe that contributes to to professions that young women or kids aspire to go into if they don't see the role models or someone like themselves in that position. Wow, very interesting. Well, hopefully as more women follow your work and just learn about the potential of psychedelic research, that will change, at least in this field. I know you were quite involved with the clinical trial work with MAPS, with MDMA. How did that happen? How did you get introduced to MAPS and what exactly were you doing during that work? When I was doing my dissertation research at the University of Texas, I started researching MDMA in 2004, and we were looking at neurochemical release, serotonin and dopamine, and trying to understand how music or the environmental conditions can impact the MDMA experience. And this was all a rodent experimentation so that we could actually measure serotonin and dopamine release. As we were doing these studies, I learned about the work going on at MAPS, and I got really interested in how MDMA was first used in the late 70s and early 80s in couples therapy. It was found to be quite effective in helping people to communicate more, build relationships and bonding, and go through a therapeutic experience guided by a therapy team, and that this was really put underground after MDMA was placed as a Schedule One substance in 1985. At this time, there was no controlled clinical trials that had been conducted, and it inhibited any research to progress for MDMA, even though there were proponents, including Rick Doblin, who founded MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, in 1986. All of this really captivated my interest in MDMA, its potential therapeutic applications. So when I completed my graduate program, I reached out to MAPS and I told them I wanted to work with them on these trials. But I was told, oh, we're really small and you've just been working with rodents, which is interesting, but we don't you know, have any place for you right now. I was really disappointed, but you know, just continued on to do some postdocs. I was at NIH and UCSF studying addiction disorder 
disorders uh, and do some medication developments there. But I circled back to MAPS after having a really profound experience with ayahuasca and the sense of knowing that we really need to research these compounds more. There's great potential for healing and transformation the culture seems to be more open and ready for it as research was progressing. I reached back out to MAPS and very serendipitously, they said, okay, well, if you want to come do an internship, we could really use somebody with your skills to help develop some training programs as well as work on the clinical trials that were going on at the time. So I jumped at the opportunity and moved out to California for this internship, which luckily did turn into a full-time position where I worked with them for five years on a number of different aspects of the clinical trials and training program. Wow, you were clearly destined to be involved in this work. That's amazing. And for those listening who don't know what is really involved in clinical trials, would you mind explaining that a little bit more? Sure. Before a substance can be given to humans, it's first evaluated in non-human models, including rodent experimentations to evaluate the safety profile, to gauge the dosing that might be used in humans, and to get a sense of how it might be applied, potentially for depression or anxiety or something like that. doesn't always translate well from the animal models to humans, but the safety studies are very important. The next step of research is what's called phase one clinical trials. This will enroll a small number of participants, usually healthy volunteers, to get a sense of dosing in humans that might be involved with a new compound. Once it's decided that it's been safe enough in the phase one trials, the substance can then move on to phase two clinical trials. This is the phase where you actually start giving the medications to participants that have a specific indication that you want to study. So in MAPS case, it was post-traumatic stress disorder, and we were testing MDMA. Typically, these trials enroll hundreds of participants. If there's a efficacy signal and a good safety with the substance, and so efficacy means does it seem to be working for the symptoms for the indication that you're looking for, then the compound can move on to phase three clinical trials where you need to conduct studies in a large group of people. Typically, there's two phase three clinical trials, and you must show safety and efficacy in both of those trials to then the FDA for approval of a new medication. So this is where we are now with psychedelics. MDMA is furthest along. It's made it all the way to the phase three clinical trials for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. And in the model that MAPS is bringing forth, MDMA is combined with psychotherapy. There's preparation sessions where MDMA is not given during these sessions, but it really prepares the person to undergo the experience. And then there's the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions spaced the month apart with integration sessions in between. These are also non-drug administration sessions where people can then go further into what came up for them during the MDMA sessions. Psilocybin therapy works a little differently, but is progressing through clinical programs. Several phase two trials have been conducted for different indications, including nicotine dependence, end-of-life anxiety for those with life-threatening illnesses. There's been research on alcohol use disorders and a few different types of depression disorders 
years are furthest along. And I think next year, a phase three trial will be starting for psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And what's really remarkable about the clinical trial process that's been unfolding with psychedelics is that the FDA awarded a breakthrough therapy designation for both MDMA and psilocybin after the phase two data demonstrated that these compounds were showing greater efficacy and safety compared to conventional treatments that are available. So this is very promising that they received these designations, but we still you know, need to rely on larger samples of people given MDMA and psilocybin before we can say for sure that they're safe and effective for the indication under study. Thank you for clarifying that. I don't think a lot of people realize how much work and expense it is to go through a clinical trial process. And MAPS has been leading the way for several years and I know has primarily raised a lot of that funding privately. And you were very involved in a lot of that work as well. And it really has become, in some ways, the gold standard for clinical trial work being done today. So really acknowledge you and MAPS and everybody involved for forging the way. And it seems now trials are able to be done in a much more, I don't know, accelerated way, but certainly perhaps a more efficient way based on what MAP started. It's true. I think we'll see much more rapid development of psychedelic substances because, well, one, the regulations around being able to conduct this research is a lot more open. And two, there's more traditional means of funding available to support the large amount of capital needed to conduct all of these phases of trials and the commercialization process that takes place after. So there's some speculation that as psychedelic assisted therapy becomes more accessible, that women may be taking part in that at a rate that's a little bit higher than men. It's certainly applicable and beneficial to both genders. But there was an interesting report I saw featured on Psychedelic Spotlight that was focused on a 2020 global drug survey, which contains some very interesting stats related to women and psychedelics. And they reported that women typically suffer from depression at twice the rates of men. They also have higher rates of anxiety and PTSD overall. And obviously, these are conditions where psychedelics are showing enormous promise through those clinical trials and the research that's being done. But it's not uncommon for women to have been excluded from clinical research in the past and with psychedelics, at least in some of the earlier trials. Why is that? That's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer, but historically, it is true that women have been underrepresented and as well as other race and ethnicities outside of white people in clinical trials. We are seeing, though, in current day psychedelic clinical research trials that the phase three trial that was published by MAPS had an overrepresentation of women. I think the sample had 70% women. So hopefully those tides are really shifting to be more balanced. It's really important when we evaluate new compounds that we do look across different genders, different sexual orientations, different races, because it's quite possible the treatment could work differently. And with something like MDMA, some of the early work in rodents, and typically rodent studies are conducted mostly in male rats and mice because hormonal influences can really shift the experimental results depending on where the animal is in their menstrual cycle. So this may also apply in some regards to women, which we're going to talk a little bit more about the potential applications of psychedelic therapies for issues that are affecting women. But nonetheless, I think that when we look at studies, most studies do include in their analysis, how does this treatment affect men versus women? Do we detect any differences? Are there any safety concerns or any differences in the effectiveness of the treatment? 
That's great. It's nice to see that there's a lot more focus on diverse sample groups, study groups going forward, for sure. And I will say too, you know, it's tricky to participate in clinical trials. You have to be able to go to study site most often in these trials with MDMA and psilocybin. The session is all day long. Could be more difficult for women that are generally caretakers of children to find support for childcare or to be able to take off a full day of work. So all of these factors may be playing into why historically women are less likely to participate in research. Interesting. That makes sense. So you've been spending time researching the potential benefits of psychedelics as it relates to women's health, especially with issues like PMS, postpartum depression, and menopause. This is a fascinating topic, and I'm really curious to hear what you're learning there. Sure. So I got interested in this topic after being a scientific advisor for a few startups that were wanting to develop treatments specifically for women's health issues. So these companies are still in the very early phase, but some of the research that we started looking into is quite fascinating. I think there is a good hypothesis for why we should be pursuing research using psychedelic compounds. So when we think about all the different phases of a woman's life, everything from menstruation to having a child to perimenopause to menopause, end of life, I really see each of these as a rite of passage. And what's really punctuated each phase is hormonal changes in hormonal regulation. And we know that estrogen and progesterone, which are two of the main sex hormones, as well as testosterone, also work in the brain and they can either stimulate, inhibit, or be neutral in their effect to other neurons neurotransmitters, including serotonin, GABA, glutamate, a number of different neurotransmitters that are very key to regulating our mood, our cognition, how we feel, how we interact in the world. And so it makes a lot of sense that because psychedelics target the serotonergic system, there could be this interplay between the serotonin effects with hormones. So as we start to think about developing psychedelic compounds, we have anecdotal evidence from historical use from indigenous tribes. There's interesting research that's been published by an anthropologist, Sarah Schaefer, where she was observing the Huichol people, Huichol Indians of Mexico, and following just the role of women in their use of peyote, which is very much embedded into every aspect of their culture. They use peyote ceremonially in a ritualistic way. But what she wrote about is really fascinating in that women were using peyote in different stages of their pregnancies. Some were using it during pregnancy, some were using it after. And what they observed was that sometimes peyote was used to stimulate contractions or to help during the birthing process. It was also being used by women after birth to stimulate the release of milk. So if we look at what we know from the animal literature, we know that peyote alkaloids can activate the release of progesterone. And progesterone has been used to treat menstrual problems and difficult pregnancies. The release of prolactin is also known to be secondary to the serotonergic effects of psychedelic substances. And prolactin is the main hormone we know to release milk. And so this hasn't been tested for safety effects in our kind of more modern Western science. But nonetheless, indigenous cultures may have been using peyote in a similar case with ayahuasca for some very specific aspects of women's health. It may be that the science catches up some point to what they have historically known for thousands of years. 
So this was really intriguing to me, and I kind of went into a deep dive into the literature looking at how might we devise the trials and what do we know about people that have been taking psychedelics in recreation or, or non-medical contexts, and what are they talking about online? So there is a number of anecdotal reports, some of the microdosing survey data that was collected by Dr. Jim Fadiman. What stood out to him were women talking about, hey, microdosing is really helping with my pain. EMS symptoms. I'm having more regular periods. I have less cramps, less headaches. My mood is just a lot more even. I've struggled with this my whole life, but microdosing psilocybin has really shifted this in a big way for me. And so, you know, we can't put too much weight on anecdotal reports until it's rigorously tested. But all of these are really guide points to the idea that, yeah, I mean, maybe there is something going on there. And we know too that hormones can impact contractions of the uterus, blood flow, all of of these aspects point to the idea that perhaps there is a physiological way that psychedelics, low doses or microdoses could be interacting with hormones to regulate these processes. It's also really interesting to think about pain involved with conditions like PMDD or postpartum depression. So, you know, if we back up a little bit from the neurophysiological effects and think more about higher dose sessions that are being applied for conditions like depression or anxiety, how useful this might be for someone that's experiencing postpartum depression. We already see some studies coming out with ketamine, which is showing that maybe this could be a good treatment for for women that are suffering from postpartum. And with, you know, some caveats there that we would want to understand with any psychedelic compound or medication that's being given to women that are breastfeeding, how long does that substance and any metabolites stay in the breast milk? Because we don't want to be exposing young infants or even prenatal exposure to substances that haven't been studied rigorously in a population or child development. And so with ketamine, a lactation study has been conducted. So they were able to take breast milk and measure how long its ketamine and its metabolites stayed in breast milk. It was found to only last for 12 hours, which is a pretty short time course where a mother could probably undergo ketamine treatment, wait a day, and then pick up with breastfeeding without too much disruption. Another piece of this to consider is if we have a young mother that has a really big psychedelic experience, you know, is there time to fully integrate that experience? And is someone there to care for the child while the mother is able to care for herself and to get the most benefits out of a higher dose psychedelic experience? So I think there's a lot more to learn and understand about how we might apply psychedelic treatments for postpartum depression. But I see this as a really encouraging avenue for further research. And I am very personally connected to this story of postpartum depression. I'll give a little side story of my great grandmother. And this was in the 1920s. She was in New Orleans and had just given birth to her fourth child and, you know, was really stressed. She had four young kids. Her husband was trying to cheer her up and went and bought her this really beautiful dress of the time. But she ended up committing suicide, drowning herself in the Mississippi River with four young children at home. And, you know, at that time, there really wasn't the talk of how do you support women that have four young children that may be struggling. And so I always have that story that never has really spoken too much about my family. It was just kind of this really sad thing that happened. So I'm grateful that perhaps now in this modern time, at least there are treatments and we really hope that there could be even more support and better treatments for women.
Thank you for sharing that. That is a really interesting topic, isn't it? Postpartum is still a very mysterious condition, I think. And it is nice that it's more acknowledged and hopefully being studied. I remember, though, maybe 20 years ago, the first time I had heard about it was through Brooke Shields, the model and actress. She had published a book. I think it was called Down Comes the Rain. And it was quite a story because she had wanted to have a family for so long and had gone through all kinds of fertility treatments and a lot of effort to finally get pregnant. And I remember her sharing that once the baby was born, she was really concerned because she felt nothing. And she thought, well, maybe I'm just tired. Maybe it's hormonal. She expected it to get better and it didn't. And I think it was several weeks later, she was driving down the Santa Monica freeway and realized she had this uncontrollable urge to drive herself and the infant into a wall. And she knew there was something radically wrong. And I think she may have even self-diagnosed herself with that and went to the doctors and didn't find they were very helpful or about it. And eventually I think she did get help. And that book at the time was quite helpful in bringing attention to that condition. And I think since then, it's certainly been studied and more in discussion, but it is such a puzzling experience. And I'm really sad to hear about that family connection, but thank you for sharing that because hopefully through some of this work, maybe there will be things that are discovered that will be super useful. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one theory is that with PMS too, as well as postpartum, that it's almost like the body is going through withdrawal effects from the hormonal changes. Like there's this estrogen peak and then it's gone and there's this dip in mood and feelings and just feeling of hopelessness. So there's a lot we might discover even just from using psychedelic compounds to kind of probe these different aspects of symptoms that come up that we know are somewhat related to hormonal release. And the next phase of life we could address, which I think is a really big one, is perimenopause or menopause. There are a lot of symptoms that come up from the changes of hormones, including hot flashes, feeling tired, feeling agitated, hot sweats, changes in body temperatures. So it's quite possible we know that MDMA and other psychedelics can regulate body temperature, maybe a norepinephrine effect. It's not really well known or serotonin. So maybe there could be some applications of low-dose treatments to address some of the physical symptoms people feel. I also see the larger dose sessions could be quite helpful for someone in that stage of life that may be looking at the existential crisis of, hey, things are really changing, my body and my life. How can I cope and address this? And perhaps even, you know, a group therapy approach for women that are all going through this change of life together and having a more openness or a different perspective that psychedelics may offer from having the experience. That's fascinating. Without a doubt, you know, one of the biggest physiological and psychological changes women undertake in their lifetime and anything that could give relief from hot flashes and some of those symptoms, I think women would be super open to. So that'll be super interesting to see how that develops. And I think you mentioned too, Ali, there is some study or interest in the application of psychedelics to treating women's low sex libido. I think that was one thing you were going to cover as well. So where to start with this one? <laughs> I will start with the idea that MDMA is already known to release, you know, like we've been talking about, neurochemicals, hormones, but the subjective effects of that we call prosocial effects or allow someone to more easily bond or communicate with someone there. So the application for couples therapy, it seems very ripe for psychedelics. You know, sometimes low libido or low sex drive, it can be psychological 
difficult for women. There can also be underlying trauma of why that might be the case. So if we think about psychedelics applied during psychotherapy, that might be one application to pursue. I know there is interest too from some drug development sponsors to look at actually using a psychedelic administration at home for someone to use with a partner to increase libido and sex drive during the experience. Anecdotally, in a non-medical settings, people talk about that quite a bit with MDMA, which can be a kind of double-edged sword when we're talking about using psychedelics within a therapeutic context because of this more open, vulnerable state where someone might feel more connected to, say, the therapy provider. And we already know that there's abuses of power, sexual abuse, things like that that have taken place in the context of psychedelic therapy. So you have to be very careful and aware of nefarious players out there. But the application, I think, for using psychedelics with a trusted partner, maybe under the guidance of a sex therapist, is a really exciting avenue to further explore in research, as well as just anecdotally people doing this out there on their own and kind of sharing their experiences of how it's helped their relationships, how it's given them a better sense of maybe blockages or old traumas or processing things that maybe were just below the surface that were really the driver of the issues they were experiencing in bed. Wow. And like you said, a lot of this work right now is very anecdotal. People self-reporting their experiences through experimentation on their own. But it seems by doing so, it's just creating more valid interest in doing concrete research. Would you agree? I agree. The ability to collect data and self-report from a larger body of people outside of this placebo-controlled trial method is starting to unveil new ways of doing science. The more people you have that are confirming things, the more people in a sample to analyze, the more likelihood that is going to apply to the general public. Oftentimes, clinical trials have very stringent criteria for enrollment, the inclusion-exclusion criteria. That's to narrow the sample down to the exact indication you're studying without too many variables or factors. But sometimes that just doesn't translate well to everybody else when you get out of the trial. The essence of collecting data through surveys, phone apps, there's new ways people are addressing these questions. And the ability to collect data continuously health data, your exercise, your mood data on your phone, more people can participate in the studies. We are collecting, you know, this body of evidence to, in some ways, support the real world application of different types of practices. At the same time, I'm very cautious and worry about people collecting all this data without actually doing informed consent and signing up for a study. A lot of tech platforms are secretly taking your data and using it for other purposes. So that's a concern as well. That's a valid point to have some actual structure around how you're participating in that work and reporting on that work is really important. Yeah, I just want everybody to be able to benefit. If we're contributing the data, we should have the insights that the companies are receiving from our data and our participation. Valid point. So I'm curious, if you look ahead to the next five to 10 years, do you have any predictions or even a wish list of what you'd love to see in psychedelic research, especially as it focuses on these connections to women's health? Yeah, I'd really like to see the MDMA trials to be completed. If the data substantiates everything, which we do think it's on course to do that, this treatment becomes readily accessible, that anyone who can benefit from it can. The costs are quite high with the two therapist model and all of these therapy sessions. It's unknown if insurance is going to cover it, at least at first. 
it's complicated, big questions there. But it doesn't warm my heart to think that this drug gets approved and only wealthy people that contend private clinics are accessing MDMA. The research field, I think, will continue to develop with many new companies now looking at novel compounds or ones that have been described already. That's going to open the door to potentially new therapeutic applications. There's other individuals looking at different types of therapeutic approaches. So might we combine, say, MDMA with prolonged exposure or EMDR, which are the gold standard methods for treating PTSD. These are interesting questions. As a neuropharmacologist, I'm very intrigued by the neuroimaging studies. We are able to use modern day technologies and tools to look into the brain after administering psychedelic compounds, which will reveal questions about consciousness, different disease states like depression and anxiety, how the brain and sensory cortex communicates information. There's been studies published showing how psilocybin works is to actually allow different brain regions to start communicating that normally wouldn't be communicating. We can potentially develop new neural pathways by undergoing psychedelic experiences. There's evidence for neuroplasticity in non-clinical models after administration of several different psychedelics. This still needs to play out, does it happen in humans, but possibly that's an underlying mechanism. The research now is also looking at compounds that were inspired by psychedelics, but don't induce these altered states of consciousness. So that's a big question. Can we target the pathways for neuroplasticity without needing to have this subjective experience? Perhaps we will find new medications. In my opinion, those medications won't be psychedelic. I feel like the psychedelic, the subjective experience has a lot of value in itself for the psychological or spiritual aspects that come from it. It's a fascinating time to be involved in research, for sure. With the applications we just discussed, the potential of psychedelics to help with menopause or postpartum or low sex drive, what do you think it would take for an institution or maybe a psychedelic business to get excited to do research in those directions? There have been a few psychedelic startups, pharmaceutical startups that wanted to get traction and raise funds to start the initial trials. It's been slow going as far as I know. There could be companies out there that I'm unaware of. The federal government, the NIH, which gives a lot of funding, has started to provide funding to universities. So John Hopkins received a grant to study psilocybin for nicotine dependence. This was the first grant awarded for a therapeutic application of psychedelics in over 50 years. This really does open the door for new research proposals. I suspect there are lots of proposals coming in at this point. We foresee the potential for new funding mechanisms from not just the NIH, potentially the VA, the Department of Defense, other foundations. The Cohen's Bioscience Foundation is one example of a more mainstream foundation that is now highly involved in supporting funding for research, for training programs, infrastructure projects. It's a whole new era for psychedelics. So I am hopeful that the next few years, we will start to see more funding different approaches in both non-clinical and clinical studies, trying to get at these questions of how can psychedelics address women's health issues and beyond. Going to be a very interesting space to watch in the next five to 10 years, for sure. And part of the focus of this podcast is to really shine a spotlight on the good work that women are doing in the space. You'd certainly be included in that. 
For anyone listening who is inspired to get into research, what have you found to be the challenges and maybe also the opportunities of being a woman doing psychedelic research? And what would be a path that someone could take to follow your lead here? We get this question quite a bit. And my advice is always take the traditional route that inspires you most, whatever degree program that may be. You want to get your skills built and some experience before you start adding on the psychedelics. So if you're thinking about becoming a therapist, you first need to become skilled as just being a therapist. <laughs> then you want to layer on the more advanced trainings that are focused on the psychedelic assisted therapies. We also are hearing that there will be opportunities like in Oregon or Colorado where professionals that aren't necessarily licensed health clinician or a PhD researcher will be able to undergo training for becoming a facilitator. This is great news for those that might not want to pursue a professional advanced degree. There could be new training opportunities that come up. I still am of the opinion, though, that because psychedelics can uproot past traumas, having a lot of experience of working with individuals that have trauma or have mental health conditions and knowing how to navigate that before we're in this altered state of consciousness could be very beneficial. I'm not sure the length of what the training programs for, say, in Oregon are required to build those types of skills, but nonetheless, there is a lot of ways that you can acquire expertise through workshops and programs, courses online, supervision, sitting, observations, internships to enable those learning experiences to unfold. It is an interesting development in terms of opening up opportunities for people to be involved in those sessions without necessarily having to have a full-on therapy degree or a medical degree. And it certainly can assist with some of the costs too, correct, in terms of making those therapies more affordable to people who really need them. Absolutely. And we know the peer support model, particularly in addiction recovery, is highly effective. I think there's a place for peer support coaches, guides, facilitators, different roles. It's about defining the scope of practice and knowing where are your boundaries of where you feel comfortable supporting someone. And when you reach the boundary of your limits, do you have resources and connections to refer them to? Which is kind of a good lead into our site, Psychedelic Support, which we launched in 2018 to provide these resources and education to enable a safer field of psychedelic practice. And so at Psychedelic Support, we offer a directory of licensed health clinicians this is organically grown through the years to over 1,300 practitioners. We also list community groups. And as we have different trained types of professionals, we are going to be expanding that directory to other types of roles, including coaches and guides. What we're talking about here, the training and continuing education is something we're big proponents of. We create courses. We have a number of free courses you can take to learn more about psychedelic substances, psychedelic therapies, and how they're being applied. We also create more in-depth online courses on MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, 5-MeO-DMT, as well as larger clinician training programs for those that want to go on to administer these substances to individuals. We've partnered with some great training groups to do that. It is a phenomenal resource. Thank you for mentioning that. I highly encourage everybody listening, go check out Psychedelic Support. We'll make sure the link is right here underneath the podcast and in our show notes. 
it is really impressive. I have a sense of how much work it's been to put that together. And it doesn't just offer information on this space, but you've done a phenomenal job at listing all the clinical trials that are available around the world. People can find out information and sign up for those if there's still room. And yeah, your courses are incredible and very affordable. And I know that what you've put together there is growing in leaps and bounds every month. So thank you very much for offering that resource and really encourage people to check it out. And you're also involved in a really inspiring nonprofit too, Project New Day. Would you share a little bit about that too, Allie? Sure. I'm actually working now with two nonprofits, the Etheridge Foundation and Project New Day. And both of these are geared towards helping individuals recover from addiction disorders. The focus is on psychedelic treatments and holistic approaches for recovery. The Etheridge Foundation is funding research at universities. This foundation was started by Melissa Etheridge, the singer-songwriter. She tragically lost her 20-year-old son to an overdose. The foundation is geared towards plant medicine research for opioid use disorders. Great things coming out of this foundation already. I'm really excited to be a part of it. And then Project New Day is funding mechanisms for a treatment program called Natura Care Programs. This is a prep and integration with ayahuasca retreats in Costa Rica. So we're learning a lot from the pilot that was conducted last year and supporting scholarships for this program and to enable a sliding scale to allow for more participants to come through that may otherwise not be able to afford it. There's a lot happening in this space. We're excited about some programs that are going to be developed for training coaches, peer support models, and looking at ways of not just supporting the psychedelic experience, but the aftercare that needs to take place. We know addiction is a chronic relapsing condition. We don't think that we're just going to have one psychedelic experience and the addiction just evaporates. It takes a lot of work on the individual, reorientating to the community, to other their life goals to the ongoing support that can happen online now through some great groups like Psychedelics and Recovery. Looking at other models of community-based care, I think is a prominent way to go. There was also a grant provided from Project New Day to support a transitional house where those that were participating in the ayahuasca retreat and program would have a safe place to support each other as the recovery process unfolds. I'm looking forward to having more to share there as the work continues. Really inspiring work. Congratulations on all of that. And no doubt, as you continue to do research and be involved in some of these projects, you'll be learning even more potentially about the connection with women's health. So we'd love to have you come back and talk about that. Meantime, how can people find you and follow you? Are you involved on social media? I think you have a LinkedIn profile. Yeah, LinkedIn is where to find me, Allison Fiducia. You can also connect with our site, psychedelic.support. We have several different social media platforms. Follow us there. We're here to support the journey and promote safety and education so that this field can advance in a good pace and advance with supporting people of, from, of all types. Thank you very much. You have been an inspiration to many in this space and especially for women interested in the psychedelic research side. So really appreciate you sharing. I could talk to you all day, but we'll definitely have you come back and share more as you get some information on the findings here with the connection to women's health. Thank you very much, Allie, for being here. Oh, it was an honor. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.